0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. We're producing Alpha Chats more regularly now, more frequently, more awesomely, we hope. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I'll give you some information on how to contact us and let us know what it is that you want to hear. And if you give us some suggestions, some feedback, good and bad, hopefully we'll be able to implement that in forthcoming episodes. But for now, let's get right on with the show. On the show today, three topics. First up, Gawker, the media and gossip website that's gotten itself into a lot of trouble because of a terrible editorial decision. We're going to talk about it with Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent, and Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson, the FT's U.S. news editor. Right after that, a special Lex segment. The head of Lex, Rob Armstrong, is here in New York, and we're going to talk about the tech sector. Big week of earnings there. And finally, FIFA. Big scandal that shocked everybody a couple of months ago and what's happening here in the U.S. We'll talk about it with the FT's investigations correspondent, Kara Scannell. Gawker is the media and gossip website founded by Nick Detton many years ago, and it's gotten itself into a lot of trouble lately because of a really terrible editorial judgment on the part of its editors, and it's raised all kinds of questions about the divide between the business and editorial side of a news organization and where Gawker fits into the media landscape in general. Here to talk about this, Shannon Bond, the media reporter of the FT, she of the melodious, mellifluous, euphonious harmonious voice shannon hi cardiff that's Every it. time, that's after, Every that. after time. that it's just it's just high back hi okay. cardiff and joining us coming down from the rarefied heights of his posting as the u.s news editor at the financial times andrew edgecliffe johnson we call him edge thanks for being here
1: you're saying i'm not euphonious too
0: <laughs> not even close all right compared to shannon give me a break uh okay guys Gawker, we've all been following this very closely, and I should add, by the way, that Edge was formerly the media editor at the FT, so this is something that he follows closely as well. Shannon, why don't you start us off just by giving us the background of what got Gawker into so much trouble?
5: Sure. So they ran a post uh, about a media executive, but not a, a well-known media executive, essentially yeah, I don't want to say his name. No, we're not going to say his name. We're not going to talk about where he works. Gawker posted images of a series of text messages he exchanged with a gay escort, guys married to a woman. And basically, the Gawker hook for the story was that the escort was trying to blackmail him. The guy said, no, he wasn't going to go along with it. With the blackmail. With the blackmail. Gawker got a hold of these text messages, published the story with the man's name, not with the escort's name, in, in a post that drew immediately drew a lot of criticism from people across the internet, you know, across the media landscape, you know, first for, for sort of what seemed to be a bit of like furtherance of the blackmail and, and really, you know, outing a person who essentially was a private person. This wasn't like a super well-known public figure. It also apparently caused quite a bit of dissension within Gawker. There were plenty of people on the editorial staff who it turned out really, really objected to the story being posted. What happened next was amid all of this outcry and a lot of opprobrium being heaped on Gawker, Nick Denton, the founder and sort of the and the sort of the where grand he's where the book yeah, he But he's
0: not, to be clear, he's not on the editorial side of Gawker anymore. No,
5: the business is essentially his and he controls the business. His family right. is the controlling shareholder in the business. He decided to take the post down. Now, this is the first time that Gawker says they've ever deleted a post Potentially, they said the post was still true, but they were going to take it down anyway because under reconsideration, they felt it was inappropriate. It was gratuitous. It was it gratuitous. Was and that it was point too, it was- and pointless. There was no yeah.
0: public interest involved. That Almost everybody far. across the media landscape, except for a few Gawker editors, are agreed on this point that there was no public interest served by posting this.
5: Right. And I think, you know, sort of what Nick said, of, you know, initially saying is like, look, we essentially there needs to be it can't be enough for something to be true. It also has to be interesting. And there wasn't enough interest here. Where this sort of all ran into a lot of trouble was that Nick says he made the decision to take it down, but Gawker is now the business. Is, it has, for the past six months, been run by a board of seven people, all of whom are on the commercial side of the business, except for one editorial representative. They voted, I think it was five to two, to take it down. And once this was communicated to the editorial staff, uh, it caused even more uproar because now you had a situation where it appeared that the business side of the business was making sure. a decision to interfere with editorial affairs. Right. Uh, so to
0: be clear, by the way, for our listeners, because not all of them are journalists, right? Within journalism, within the news, it's expected that there be a very clear divide between the people who run the business and who deal with advertisers and the people who pay journalist salaries essentially on the one side and then on the other side of the wall the journalists themselves who need to be free of all interference from the business side so that there are no conflict of interest and where the perception of that freedom also is incredibly important the perception of that autonomy so right. that readers know that they can trust them essentially
5: That's right. You know, Nick Denton said in, in in his post about this himself at one point he said you know we you know we had advertisers who had a problem with this sort of implying that that was part of the reason it needed to be taken down. The journalists at Gawker, whether or not they agreed that the Post should have gone up in the first place, all felt essentially completely betrayed that this idea that the business side, the commercial side, was going to come in and interfere with the editorial freedom of the, of the news operation or of the writing operation. We can talk about whether it's
6: news or right, not.
0: Right, right. And we will, by the way. Yeah. Um, okay, first question that all this brings up then, okay? You have an instance where a private, an essentially private figure – has been outed for no good reason, right? Probably humiliating his family again for no good reason. It was a terrible editorial choice, but it brings up the wider question edge. Okay, what happens when you have an instance like this where the editorial team has done a terrible job? The people on the business side recognize that they've done a terrible job and they have a business interest in mitigating the damage, but at the same time, To mitigate the damage, they would have to breach that wall. What's the right way of thinking about a situation like that?
1: All right. So to back up a bit, I went to see Hamilton last night on Broadway, the new show.
0: I can't wait to see where you're taking this. You're
1: all envious, I know. Um, Alexander Hamilton was the first major politician in this country to be brought down by a sex scandal. And since the guys who were writing the First Amendment were writing the First Amendment, there has been this... Question in American society about the battle between the right of a free press and the right to privacy. Yeah. Now, what we're seeing now is that battle playing out in a very, very different age—the one, the anything goes age of the the modern internet. And Gorka right. has its roots in an earlier internet. We can talk about that later. But essentially, through that whole period, you've had the overlay of the commercial struggles of editorial owners, and this concept of editorial independence has become. Deeply rooted, particularly in the US. Um, But it's also under great pressure. Uh, And increasingly, the pressure is not so much from the kind of tyrannical mogul who wants to use the ink he buys by the barrel to advance his interests and, you know, often over those of the newsroom or the views of the newsroom. It's often the sort of impoverished mogul, you know, who's wondering how he's going to pay the bills uh, in a news landscape which is becoming much, much tougher, whether it's for the traditional ink. Buyers uh, of the printed press, or for digital media, which is largely dependent on a digital advertising model that's proved to be rather fragile. So Gawker is you know, one of the biggest names in this newer landscape. It's it's twelve years old, so it's not that new. Sure, but you brought up fragility.
0: Gawker itself was yeah. already under threat in some sense by this Hulk Hogan scandal. So yeah,
1: right? and just two numbers. You know, it's got revenues of roughly forty-five million. Dollars uh, on the last account, and uh, about seven million of profit a year. Hulk Hogan wants a hundred million in return. Right, for the we should give some
0: background, further background on this, the Hulk Hogan scandal. Shannon, you've been you've been looking at this as well. You want to give us the flavor of that?
5: Yeah. So, so Hulk Hogan is a professional wrestler. Yes. Uh, that many of our listeners, I hope, are familiar with. Gawker got hold of a sex tape and you know, did an edit and put it up. And uh, Hulk Hogan has sued them over invasion of his privacy. And Gawker's defense in this case. Uh, is that Hulk Hogan, first of all, is a very public figure, and under U.S. libel law, public figures have less of a ability to claim privacy. But also, sort of critically, he's made his sex life like a really big part of his public persona. So Gawker's arguing, look, this is in, within the fair bounds. But there's going to be a lawsuit, there's going to be a trial, uh, it was he's asking for 100 million. And I think you know a lot of people say that Gawker probably does have a pretty good First Amendment case. However, you know, their their legal bills have always been high. They are constantly getting sued. It's just it's part of the way they, they end sure. up doing business. Um, but this this case, I mean, regardless of sort of how strong you think the merits are, they're facing a real risk here. Because if they do get sued, they do get slapped with um, those kind of damages, I and mean, we could very well bankrupt the company.
0: It could put them out of business. And,
5: and Denton has said, you know, he would like to sell a stake of the company to an outside investor to get some more capital in, but he can't do it while the while the lawsuits hanging over them. So they're a bit hamstrung right now.
0: Okay, so going into the shenanigans of the past week, when they outed this guy, right? They were already facing this in the
5: background. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Had- there was the, there was this whole. I mean, it's both a financial risk and also. Anything that sort of adds to the image of Gawker as being irresponsible and how it is approaching privacy you know, doesn't help their case. Sure. I mean, it, from the editorial side,
0: what's astounding about this is that if you're going to choose a story on which to take a stand, this really is the last story you would want to do that on to say, well, I'm taking a principled stand. And because of this, for instance, the, I think the editor-in-chief of Gawker and the executive editor both resigned in protest. This is the story on which they're leaving.
1: It's a terrible one to go to the barricades for. Yeah. It's a grubby story. And even in Gorka's own newsroom, a lot of people feel very, very uncomfortable about right. it. But as, as somebody said in the last week, you know, we shouldn't have published the story. We also shouldn't have taken it down.
0: Yeah.
5: The company has said it always it wants to sort of operate in this way that's radically transparent. And actually, we, we have seen that play out in this case. The reason we know so much about it is you know, all of these things have been essentially public, you know Nick Denton has been putting statements out publicly on Gawker. Gawker writers have been responding publicly. a lot of it's played out on Twitter. You know they've been very open about this process, and I think a lot of people in the newsroom said, you know, fine, the way to deal with this this situation where we put something up we shouldn't have would be to talk about it and to totally have this conversation about what's appropriate. But you don't do that by just taking it down that they they were advocating for." You know, editorial to have a, have and then a maybe discussion eventually
0: you arrive at the same decision, but we'll never know now this, right. that this was the wrong way of doing right. things. Right? Yeah. I mean, one one of the reasons I'm to- a little bit torn about all this is because Gawker actually does employ some damn good journalists, but I want to talk about its place in the media landscape in general. Okay, because it seems to me like something along these lines was always a little bit inevitable. They're always pushing the envelope, but at the same time, if you constantly foster an environment of pungency of, you know, assholery, right? Whatever you want to call it. If you're always doing stuff like this, and certainly it's not the only thing they do. They, they do some very fine journalism. I want to keep emphasizing that, but if they're constantly doing this at some point, this was going to come back to bite you. And, I guess I wonder if one of the reasons it got pushed this far in this case at least was because the rest of the media has essentially caught up to the good stuff that Gawker does. In other words, the aggressive scrutiny of the rest of the media, the aggressive scrutiny of powerful figures. And so the only thing that's left for it to distinguish itself is to do this really asinine thing.
5: I mean, I think there's there's been kind of an interesting shift. Uh, you know, they started, when they started 12 years ago, I mean, they were very much a blog. They identified it as a blog. I don't think they would necessarily have claimed the mantle of journalism in the sort of more traditional way that we think about it. And they took a fair amount of freedom by by that, saying, you know, we are we are doing something different. But yeah, I mean, as they have acknowledged themselves, you know, they ha- there are newer competitors out there who are essentially have beat them at their own game. The company had a bit of a soul search at the end of last year when they put in place this this board and, and Nick stepped down as president of the company and said, you know, we're not going to go after Facebook clicks. We're not going to kind of just do that kind of pandering. Posts were're gonna return to sort of the more of the idea of like we can be investigative and we can be hard hitting and we can you know be real critics. At the same time, he's trying to build a much more in some ways a traditional media business model on something that they hadn't sort of had before. And they don't have the necessarily the financial resources of some of their competition. I mean, you know BuzzFeed and Vox both raised you know close to 50 million each. you know in the past year, Vice has raised an enormous amount of money. And, you know, Gawker has been sort of chugging along. And I mean, in some ways, I think that's been intentional to have some sort of independence. They don't have stakes in them from some of these traditional media companies. But at the same time, that's left them very vulnerable to losing the traffic that they once really owned.
1: Ed, what do you think? Well, in many ways, this, they weren't chasing cheap clicks. You know, as Shannon said, they, they changed a bunch of stuff lately else yeah, actually including changing the incentives for their journalists. So instead of being rewarded purely for the number of clicks you got, the re- The reward structures changed uh, t- so that uh, journalists would be paid bonuses based on what, the quality, as perceived by their editors, of their posts. This wasn't a sort of sh- a shallowly reported story. It was, you know, they'd, they'd done the work in many ways. It was a very, very grubby story that I think was of, of highly dubious value. But it wasn't quite a simple sort of chase, to, race to the bottom. What I would say is that this competition is really. About noise, you know, and breaking through that noise puts an enormous premium on originality in news. So, coming up with something that the next guy doesn't have, which isn't just a couple of kittens doing something cute together, is getting harder and harder. And that may have contributed to the pressure. When you think about the the subsequent reaction in the newsroom to uh, Nick Denton's decision to pull the story, some of that is if you hire a bunch of people to challenge authority, you you shouldn't be too Surprised if they challenge yours.
0: Yeah, that's true. Although it still remains unclear to me what the right course of action for Denton and the other managing partners uh, to take would have been in this case.
1: And I think they could have very simply said, you know, and very loudly said, we disagree with this, but we stand by. It. Editorial independence is everything, our integrity is everything. We're sending a very clear message to editorial we don't want to see another story like this again. We regret this one was published but even but even we that itself is it.
0: crossing the line and saying we don't want to see another story like I think, this. I think I mean, uh, the, commercial the, the management's
1: t- allowed to have a view on these things you know to express a view. I think it's different from actually interfering in the editorial product to the level of of pulling it uh, I mean traditionally, editorial independence has essentially meant that owners have left newsrooms alone, but they've still chosen the editor you know they've still yes had this and power I guess that's my other question
0: though is in this case is the right thing to do To leave it up, say I disagree with it and also reflects bad editorial judgment. So the editor's fired, and we're going to hire a new editor and maybe, you know, whatever that new editor wants to do in this case, okay, I'll respect his or her judgment as well. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. It seems like something we're all still kind of grappling with. And to be honest, Um, that
1: the answer is going to be different in every different newsroom. You know, the culture of Gorka is unique. You know, the culture of BuzzFeed is different. You know, the culture of the FT is different. Right. Know, we're all going to have different answers to that. But I think one underlying thread is that for most of these brands, actually, when you talk about the the tension between commercial value and editorial independence, that is a bit of a false choice because it should be that once editorial independence is absolutely core to the value of the brand. You know, you are doing something that is not dictated by... Your business model that's not dictated by the people who are advertising with you and all the people who are paying your subscriptions.
5: And I think potentially one of the things that's been very galling for the editorial staff at Gawker is that they've been pretty aggressive at criticizing other media organizations that have have bowed to the pressures of the commercial and advertiser side. You know, they they tore apart BuzzFeed for you know deleting posts that their advertisers didn't like. And so I think that, again, sort of furthered the sense of, you know, what, what is the picture here? But as you say, it's really, the, it's muddy. The waters, the waters are really muddied there. And, and this on this idea. point,
1: you know, to be clear, this wasn't a post about an advertiser. You know, they have, they have written posts about one under the, the headline of Brands Are Not Your Friend, which, you know, a lot of advertisers weren't very happy about, but they didn't take that down in the end. But what Nick Denton has said in the wake of this incident is He is concerned that the Gorka brand, which incidentally applies to both the Gorka blog itself and to the group of seven blogs, the company Gorka media, that that's actually damaging the corporate yeah there, there is a, what he calls the so he sees us a twenty million dollar Gork tax of you know, that brand value is actually a negative one now for the group. So I, I do wonder whether we're going to see some change in terms of the corporate name, in terms of the corporate structure, in terms of governance. Um, I think you know, in many ways, this is a sort of storm in a media teacup. In another way, I think we will see some lasting change. This
0: outlet. does get to something about the way that not just other journalists, but also just a wider audience actually observes and ingests these kinds of media brands, right? Or these kinds of websites, I should say, right? I mean, this is this is popular stuff. This isn't, you know, Gawker isn't as valuable as it is yeah. because nobody reads it or because it's only this kind of self-serving, navel-gazing naval kind of thing where other journalists see them. But Shannon, to your point, it's true that there was no shortage of schadenfreude in the aftermath of all this. Other journalists or other websites or other news organizations that have been tagged were happy to point out that Gawker had screwed up big time. On the other hand, if Gawker's going to go after other people the way they do and for the very thing that they themselves did this time, they've got to eat it, right? They've got to eat it when everybody looks at them and says, what are you doing? Because yeah. I actually can't remember a case quite as outrageous as this in the media.
5: And I think there's actually a bit of a tacit acknowledgement of this in that you know, this, this is all playing out in public. They haven't been sort of hiding this. It's not like they haven't been making comments, you know, and they haven't been giving interviews and they haven't been out there, you know, essentially having this fight in public.
0: That's
1: true.
5: And I think, you know, they, they realize that they are going to have to, you know, take it as well as dish it out.
1: Yeah. One of the interesting things is about this story is that, you know, Nick Denton is actually saying this story might have been fine 12 years ago. In, the earlier de- in an earlier era of internet journalism, this might have been okay. But now times have changed. People are more concerned about privacy. And I was, I was very, very interested to see him say that. And I don't know whether that's a sort of post-Snowden thing, whether we're I all think just it's kind self-serving of—
0: self-serving nonsense, with all due <laughs> respect. I think that's complete nonsense. Uh, it, that kind of editorial judgment, right, I don't think was ever— ethically acceptable in journalism i do think that 12 years ago we would have seen this and said this is outrageous this is ridiculous uh that sounded to me like that seemed to me like a misstep in the aftermath of everything that was happening was all moving very quickly and this was one of the things he said and it struck me as ludicrous
5: and they've had a bit of a long history of outing people generally more high profile people but that they've had a lot of blowback for and that Nick Denton has defended in the past. So it may be that, you know, his perception of things has changed. But yeah, I'm not it's a little it's hard to say that, you know, whether or not the sort of the objective media world perception. But yeah, but I,
0: I still think it's important that we explain where the line is yeah. here, right? Because a lot of the people that they've outed in the past, they outed for justifiable reasons. Politicians who'd taken a stance on one thing right. and in their private lives hmm. had made this big screw-up that might have even been illegal that revealed that they were indulging themselves in something that they publicly were arguing against. I actually understand that, right? right? And I'm actually fine with that. Okay. In this case, there was actually no good reason the person who was outed, okay, didn't do anything to justify the kind of scrutiny and humiliation that's been visited upon his family. And so I, I actually think we need to Look, make I, that I don't clear. think
1: any of the three of us would have wanted would know, agreed with that. True so I'm just going, I'm going history, to his but...
0: justification Uh, for it seemed like in that case, right. That specific line that you just referenced. Okay. Where he said that 12 years ago, this might've been fine. I don't think that's true. That sounded to me as Shannon hinted that that was a kind of instinctive reaction. Right. But
1: What I think that does tell us is Gork is getting a little older. You know, I wouldn't say they've more quite mature. grown up, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's uh, uh, fully mature. But, you know, there are there have been many other people who've come along since Gorker. As Shannon pointed out, the Mashables, the, the BuzzFeeds um, of, of the world are, are newer and often better funded. They've sort of tapped into a, a wave of money that's come into news more recently that maybe Nick and uh, Gorker have missed out on. But, you know, they're, they're almost the sort of granddaddies of this medium this part of the medium what will be interesting to see is whether the people who come after so hew to a more traditional view of uh, editorial standards or whether they just become the new they, they they kind of dig in a deeper gutter yeah
0: i mean again they I'll, I'll emphasize this for the third time they actually do have some very talented yeah very hard-hitting journalists who have integrity and understand that this was a stupid thing to do. They don't deserve whatever fallouts coming their way. But Gawker, the organization, I think very much does.
5: Actually, the most sort of outdated part of this whole thing is the idea of taking the post down. It's just, as if we live in some earlier journalism age when yeah. you know the internet wasn't serious, right? If it was in print, it was serious. If it was online, whatever, which is kind of the age that Gawker first emerged in. But you know, the idea that you know this post goes up, it comes down, and then that's it. Yeah, I it mean, doesn't no, solve the internet anything. is forever. There's no yeah, there's, and no, we all take, know there's
0: no take backs here. <laughs> right. And so know?
5: so that actually is the thing to me that seemed a little bit, you know, really missing the the current mode we're in.
0: Shannon Bond, Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Kana. moving right along rob armstrong the head of lex is in new york with us rob correct me if i'm wrong the lex column at the ft has actually been around for 3000 years 2500 right? years 2500
2: started in, in china in the ming dynasty i thought it was the ancient greeks yeah uh, no no we, uh, yeah. we chase it's babylon or china focuses mainly on corporate stories yeah. it
0: provides trenchant insight commentary more or less
2: thing. i mean we've we've had there's been times when we've talked more about economics and macro stuff, but we now we leave that to the wise people of <laughs> Alphaville. All right. Let's talk about some companies, specifically in the tech sector. Yes. Okay. a couple of weeks.
0: It has been. I mean, it's gotten so weird. Last mm. week, it could do no wrong. This week, it's falling off a cliff. Yes. So I guess we, we should start by talking about Apple, which announced earnings on Tuesday, the yep. day before this podcast is being recorded. So here's what's fascinating about it. Okay. $50 billion in revenue. About $10.7 billion in in profits. That's up 38% on the same quarter last year. It now has a $200 billion cash pile. So, of course, the stock falls
2: off a cliff. Yes. What happened? Well, what happened was expectations were a tiny bit higher than what they delivered. And the stock has done so well over the last two years that even the tiniest aberration from the highest expectations, the stock is going to get punished. Our view is this is a bit of an overreaction. There's nothing about these numbers that changes what Apple looked like to us on Monday versus what they look like on Wednesday. Sure. You know, there's nothing there to shock us. So we kind of think the market, you know, wet, it, wet its pants a little on this one for uh, for no reason. Yeah, which happens sometimes. But in terms of expectations, it seems
0: to have met its financial expectations. Yes. It was around— The iPhone shipments right. were a
2: little lower, and— Uh, guidance or the target the company set for revenue for the next quarter just barely touched what analysts had been looking for. So there's, you know, as always, there's the kind of official number that everybody's looking for. And then there's the whisper number. Oh, it's really going to be a blowout quarter. Right. So, you know, so the whisper number was a little higher and I think people were disappointed. Now, I think there is a challenge coming for Apple, which is not this quarter, but their December quarter. So the big thing you have to be looking out for if you own this stock is, back in the December quarter, they sold seventy-four million iPhones, which is a staggering number if you think about it. They had versus forty-nine and a half million this past this past quarter. But that's it's it's normal seasonal variation, right? Right. Obviously, in the Christmas quarter, they're going to sell a lot more. The question is, Christmas quarter this year, you're looking back at a Christmas quarter in which you did seventy-five billion dollars in sales, you did seventy-four million units of iPhones. You know, China is a big country. They're selling a lot of phones there. They're growing really well, but comping against last Christmas, the Christmas of the iPhone 6, is going to be really tough. And there's a possibility that you wake up in December and January and Apple is a stock that revenues are not growing at all. It's flat. The Apple Watch it was a disappointment. And we don't know for a fact that it was a disappointment, but people were put off by how little detail tim cook gave about unit sales specifically he gave no details
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so uh they they were disappointed how few details they have he didn't actually talk about it in the earnings call
2: yeah i mean they said the phone is doing better than we expected whatever the watch oh yeah i'm sorry the watch is doing better than we expected so i mean that's great and you know People are estimating they did 2 million units based on the sort of extrapolating from the numbers we saw in the other category of the income statement. Uh, Maybe people were hoping for three, but I don't think anyone is saying that the watch has been a rip-roaring success.
0: Okay. Google. All right, I said that last week it seemed like the tech sector could do no wrong, but really I was talking about Google, whose stock really spiked in the aftermath of its own earnings release. The company now seems to be moving towards a little bit more cost-cutting, a little bit more financial discipline. That's the signal they're trying to give off. Are you confident they're actually going to follow that?
2: Well, the idea of a disciplined Google is, first of all, extremely strange. Part of the company's identity is that they're trying to you know, invent their refrigerator that also doubles as a unicycle. It's an oxymoronic concept. Yeah. Disciplined Google. (laughs) But consider the following. So last quarter... This company had about 18 billion in revenue. It had about 6 billion in operating expenses and about 2.5 billion in capex. And nobody really knows how much of those expense lines they actually have to spend. So you're sort of free to imagine whatever margins you want when you think about disciplined Google because you don't know where all the money's going now. So this grown up from Wall Street comes along, the new CFO, and says, you know, we're going to operate this like a company, and everybody says, "Holy crow, I can just pencil in any <laughs> EPS number I want here now." Yeah. <laughs> you know? So th- this is this is specifically Ruth Porat. This was her first time. Yeah, her handling... first quarter right. as CFO person, and nobody had ever talked about cost discipline on a Google call before. So, so I mean, the, the business justification for these kind of big thinky
0: projects that they've had right? Do you, yes. you mentioned the, the refrigerator that talks to you or whatever, but actually yeah. the, the driverless car technology, driverless car. things of that nature that they're always working on. The yes. business justification for this was always, well, sure, we're going to try a lot of these dreamy ideas, mm-hmm. but and maybe a lot of them will fail, but at some point, if one of them works out, it'll work out in a huge way.
2: Yes. Well, the the new businesses... So the core business for Google is internet advertising. The businesses outside of internet advertising that have worked for Google have actually been businesses they bought. So they bought uh, YouTube. They bought the core of the Android mobile business. So, so far, we haven't seen any of these moonshot businesses really come back in a big way. I'm sure Google would say, oh, you don't, don't forget about the so-and-so business. That's great. But essentially, those businesses haven't returned much. And um, people are just excited about the prospect of higher margins for this company. Sure. Okay. And they expect that to continue. Yeah. And okay. the, the stock is telling you people believe that this is going to happen. Okay. Uh, well in terms of market value,
0: the three U S companies with the highest market value are Apple, Google, and then the third company we're going to talk about Microsoft. Yes. What's going on there?
2: Well, let me give you some context. A couple of years ago, uh, PC sales were falling at about ten percent year over year, fifteen percent year over year. Microsoft stock was selling at about nine times earnings, and I wrote uh, a lex note that I've had the pleasure of regretting ever since, in which I said, "This, uh, you know, this thing really looks like the wheels are finally coming off here. People aren't upgrading their PCs. Uh, all their business, the Windows business, the Office business, all depends on that. And what happened if I wrote that?" Column immediately PC sales stabilized for a year and a half. The stock just went on a a two year rip. Well, now PC sales are turning over again. So we went from zero year over year, plus one, minus one. Suddenly we're looking at minus five, minus 10 year over year growth in PCs. That showed up in Microsoft's numbers this time around. So their sales of Windows were down, you know, Windows installed on PCs were down like 20, 30%. Now, the optimists would say, we're all waiting for Windows 10. 10." Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, actually. I think PCs are all good enough there that we upgrade only when they break. You know, I'm not saying, oh, I got to get a Windows 10 machine. I will get a new PC when my old PC, which is already four years, breaks. Because it's good enough. Five-year-old PC, fine. So uh, I am going to be stupid for a second time and make grumbly... Pessimistic noises about Microsoft here, especially given the stock has run up so much.
0: Okay. Um, one last thing I think we should mention about Microsoft, though. They also ended up
2: writing off the entire value of its Nokia purchase. Yes. Talk about how important is, that is. Is any company ever been worse at anything than Microsoft is at acquisitions? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, you, you talk about. They did a quantitative seven billion dollars, wrote that down to zero. That was a digital advertising business. They did Nokia nine billion dollars, they wrote that down to zero. Don't forget they tried to buy Yahoo for $40 billion or something. That company, other you know, it's now worth $5 billion or something, you know. So they're terrible at this. People are worried they're gonna try to buy Salesforce, which is a uh, which Do you is think gonna... it'd be a big mistake. Well, they don't have a good track record, that's for <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> and so it's not their, I guess, a business manager would call it, or a business scholar would call it. It's not their core competency. No. I guess here, here's my question: is though, what will be their, you know, their core competency, yeah. the thing they're best at uh, uh, think, going forward? The cloud? That that's where they're yeah, focused on, right? I think on, that right?
2: it, it's uh, cloud software for businesses and uh, for consumers who use their computer for business. So Windows three sixty five. Uh, business software like exchange, uh, communication technology within companies. I mean, that's, and those businesses are growing pretty well. So, is that going you think that's going to be enough to replace what used to be their strength, right? And no, okay.
0: <laughs> okay, it doesn't but, get any clearer uh,
2: <laughs> than that. All right. But, but you know, the, the it's not going to disappear as a company. They have a, there's a lot of great businesses in Microsoft. Right. It's just this is a company that used to have the best business in the history of business. I think you have to remember that. The core PC software business for Microsoft was the best business the world has ever seen. Sure. In terms of return on invested capital, in terms of growth, in terms of sustainability. I mean, Hard no, to replicate. no one like has that. seen a money press that ran that fast. Sure.
0: Okay. Uh, While you're here, one last thing, because you've been looking for sort of hidden treasures or hidden clues in the Mm. Chinese stock market. So many people talking now about whether or not the Chinese stock market's decline in recent months reflects something bigger happening in the Chinese economy. But actually, it's kind of hard to know because the Chinese stock market was in such an obvious bubble for a while. This seems like an
2: obvious shakeout. So it's hard to sort of discern what the right signals are. What do you think? Well... The, the thing the optimists all say is that the size of the Chinese stock market, the total market cap of the stock market, is much smaller relative to the Chinese economy than, say, the U.S. stock market is to the U.S. economy. So it can crash and things will be okay. I'm not so sure because you can shake confidence, whatever the relative size of the piles of money are, you can shake people's confidence. But we don't have a lot of information yet, but we have gotten about a clue and a half. A clue and a half. Clue and a half. So clue number okay. one is United Technologies, which among many other things makes elevators and air conditioners, something that a growing China bought a lot of. Both of those businesses at United Technologies, which reported earlier this week, they cut expectations in China. They, they, it, for instance, in the Otis elevator business, they were looking for a 5% increase in orders this year. They think they're going to get a, a loss of 10% in their order book in China. That doesn't sound like a growing economy to me. You know, an ur- a fast-growing urbanizing economy with tons of tall buildings. So that sounds like an actual clue that something is going on there, and it's not very good. Uh, the second thing is the car manufacturers and specifically uh, Audi slash Volkswagen. So uh, they this have the just... half a clue? This is the half a clue because okay. we don't really know. But there was like a poorly sourced Bloomberg story saying they were going to massively cut their target for unit sales in China, which was 600,000. People familiar with the matter. You know those people. They yeah, have a special, those, they, yeah, they have a special room in Bloomberg where they keep the yeah. people familiar <laughs> with the matter. And uh, they went into that room and asked them, and they said, uh, Audi is going to cut its unit target. And the uh, Volkswagen has gotten rid of its—just recently removed its head of its China operations. So we're all sort of waiting with bated breath to see when the automakers actually report what they say. And for modern global automakers, basically all the incremental unit growth comes from China. A little bit from the United States, but mostly it's coming from China. So when those companies report again, we're going to find something out. Rob Armstrong, head of Lex, thanks for being here. Thank you.
0: Moving right along. The latest on the FIFA scandal for that, I'm joined first by Cara Scannell, the FT's investigations correspondent. Cara, you're never happier than when you're in a courtroom.
4: Well, it's live theater. What can you say? It's a lot of fun.
0: And also with us, Matt Garahan, the FT's media editor. Matt is here not only because he knows a lot about FIFA, but also because you can't just have a couple of Americans talking about soccer. No, it's actually illegal. Yeah. yeah. So there there was actually quite a bit of gloating a little while ago, when the scandal first broke, when these investigations were announced, partly because US regulators, US prosecutors were involved. I say gloating because the Americans reacted with a kind of collective hey, we don't even care about soccer that much, but we're going to clean up this organization for the rest of the world.
3: And the rest of the world thanked you profusely <laughs> yes. for doing something that it had been unable to do for the better part of 15 years.
0: Exactly. But So before we get to the courtroom bits that Kara's been reporting on lately, we should probably give some background here, right? Matt, do you want to start by telling us what these investigations were all about in the first place when they were announced?
3: Right. So they were the result of a, um, a two- or three-year investigation into fifa and its finances after chuck blazer who was a pretty senior um, fifa official uh, and an american uh, turned um, state's evidence i guess is the right the right way to describe it and to US, prosecutors. to us prosecutors who were investigating him for tax evasion and he gave up the whole the whole sort of story he 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 gave up individuals and provided details and that enabled the Department of Justice to launch this massive investigation into FIFA and its, and its sort of corrupt hierarchical structure.
0: Okay, so Kara, these investigations involved uh, mainly bribery both for broadcast rights of some kind, but also into bribery about who would get, which city would get the World Cup in different years.
4: Right, that's right. What um, Blazer's physician as head of, or the secretary general of um, one of the federations within FIFA put him kind of at a front row seat to a lot of this, these dealings. And he himself was involved, at least according to his plea agreement and his uh, charges to arranging a lot of these marketing deals. So the, the crux of the case so far, and it's still ongoing, which prosecutors here have stressed, uh, was looking at certain World Cups and um, these very lucrative broadcasting, marketing, and licensing rights that, uh, that, the, that are doled out each year and for all the tournaments that support the World Cup.
0: So broadcasting and licensing rights, does that mean to show FIFA games on television, essentially, FIFA matches?
4: Basically. And then any uh, they got a lot of money from ticket sales as well.
0: Okay. And I think the number you put in your story was $150 million. That's the number that's been thrown around. That's how much money uh, was thought to be involved in these bribes.
4: Right. That's the amount that was paid out in bribes. The broadcasting rights are worth tens of that more.
0: Okay. Matt, this is something that you might be able to explain because legally, I have trouble understanding how the Americans are involved here at all. FIFA is its own sort of self-policing organization. Isn't that right? It's not right. attached to any global legal body, right? How does right. that work exactly?
3: Well, that's always been why it's been able to evade prosecution elsewhere because it sets its own rules. It's based in Switzerland. The difference in this this time, as Cara has been reporting, is that the money that was paid in these bribes, a lot of the time they flowed through U.S. accounts, and that gives the U.S. authorities' jurisdiction to go after and um, extradite these individuals and bring them back to the U.S. to face trial.
0: Okay, so let's start talking about the U.S. side of the case, because there's the U.S. side and then there's the Swiss, the case brought by Swiss regulators or Swiss prosecutors, right? So in the U.S., Kara, you've been reporting on this for a couple of weeks now. Who is Jeffrey Webb and what is his involvement in all this?
4: Jeffrey Webb is the uh, former, he's a vice chairman at FIFA, and he sat on two important committees, the Finance Committee and the Organizing Committee for the World Cup. Uh, he was arrested in Switzerland before the latest Congress, and he was he just agreed to extradition to the U.S. and arrived uh, last week and was in a courtroom getting arraigned on Saturday.
0: Okay, and Aaron Davidson, who's that?
4: Aaron Davidson is one of the sports marketing guys. Uh, he worked for... Web at some point and um, and he also uh, worked for traffic sports, which was one of the main marketing companies that that he is alleged to have done a lot of transactions involving web. so Davidson said uh, in court last week that he is going to he's working on a plea deal with prosecutors. so if they gain his cooperation in addition to the cooperation of the former head of traffic sports who already pled guilty that really kind of tightens the noose around Webb because a lot of the allegations against Webb involve this two individuals.
0: Okay. Is there some uncertainty about whether or not Webb himself will at some point plead guilty and also cooperate maybe to get somebody higher up the chain as well?
4: I think that's the goal of prosecutors. Uh, he agreed to come here freely. He's married to an American that might have something to do with it, and he might think he has a better shot of coming here to face it versus fighting extradition, which can be years and very expensive. Uh, and I think you know what you've seen in a lot of other cases is if you cooperate early, you really can get a discount or no no prison term at all.
0: Okay. So in terms of the money flows in this case, because Davidson worked for sports marketing, um, Webb was at FIFA and for a time also at CONCACAF. Is that how you pronounce it? This, okay. That's right. So that's the South American affiliate of
4: FIFA? The North and Central American affiliate. North yeah.
0: and Central American affiliate of FIFA. Okay. And he was there... Did, Aronson essentially send money to Webb in exchange for getting broadcast rights for Sports Marketing USA. Or how did that work? Like, what did, what, what does Sports Marketing USA actually do? Uh,
4: yeah, so that's that's pretty much what the allegations are in the indictment. That Davidson was part of the group that arranged allegedly for these bribes to be paid for Webb in order to give Traffic Sports the ability to then go and and sell broadcasting rights to broadcasters across the north and south america i see
0: okay cool um matt sep bladder mm. okay talk about him for a little while and whether or not he's going to be affected by all of these all of these investigations
3: well uh sep hitherto known as uh, teflon Sep, because nothing would stick right is now that running scared to? it has to well finally it has after you know as, as i said earlier two decades almost of charges being thrown at him and him getting away with it. He's the head of FIFA, by He's the way. He's the head of FIFA. So. The long-term head of FIFA has worked for the organization for decades. I interviewed him 15 years ago when the late, the last round of corruption allegations are being leveled at FIFA and um, allegations that brown envelopes full of money had been paid to delegates from certain countries to secure his election as FIFA president. He's resigned. He resigned uh, last month when all this, this came to light. He's under... For the first time, real pressure from sponsors and other agencies that deal with FIFA broadcasting. To clean players. things up. Yeah, Coca-Cola has said this week that they'd urged a sort of complete overhaul of FIFA and its structures right. um, and wanted somebody independent to come in and look at the the, the, the organization and, and run yeah. it.
0: And to clarify, he resigned. He's still in the job for now. He is. And I, he's, I forget which but
3: date. But, but also, he's not going anywhere. He's in Switzerland and is afraid to leave. Uh, in case he gets arrested, he sort of said as much recently. He wasn't at the final of the women's World Cup. He spoke this week about not going, not travelling because of fear of fear of arrest. Okay. And yet he still, I think, sit in his position. He's resigned, but he's sitting there as the most senior official until elections are held to re- to replace him at the end of this year or beginning of next year. So
0: I have a question for both of you guys, okay? Because the announcement of the investigations themselves, I think, took everyone by surprise. The involvement of the Americans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in terms of the actual behavior of FIFA, all right or let's call it the alleged behavior it's been well known for such a long time that it seems a little hypocritical of these companies to now say, "Well, no, yeah, completely I'm getting out and yet it's probably still useful for these companies. i mean, could is there any is there any way in which these companies could have been taken by surprise that fiFA is this, again, I'm doing air quotes here for our listeners, allegedly corrupt organization, has been up to these shenanigans. And now now they're saying, well, no, 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 we don't know about this. Mm.
4: They're only saying it now. They didn't say it at the time of the charges. When you've got the entire you know, organization basically being alleged to be corrupt, even then they kind of stood silently by FIFA and didn't say anything. And it's only now that you've got the you've got an additional swiss investigation you've got fifa itself acknowledging that it's got problems and that they've hired us lawyers to come in and try to restructure their governance and I think there's probably also a little bit of a sense or concern of what will U.S. prosecutors think of their role if they sit so silently by? Mm. I mean, th- you know, whether or not they knew of anything, that's a big stretch and they probably didn't. But I think, you know, it, it doesn't go over so well. They kept their distance. Exactly. exactly. But
3: there's a reason for this. I mean, the reason is that um, you'd, you'd have to be living in a on a desert island, right, for the last 15 years to be unaware of severe corruption allegations involving senior FIFA officials, improper payments, other damaging allegations. And it is hypocritical of them to come out now and say, oh, yes, we, we urge reform uh, at this point. And the reason they kept quiet is because FIFA holds the keys to the kingdom. FIFA controls the rights to the world's most lucrative and watched sport and its crown jewel, the World Cup. And if you want to get in front of a large, enormous global audience, you need to be associated with FIFA and its, and its competitions. And I think if they'd made the uh, you know weighed up, right? The, you know the the sort of cost benefit of of leaving the organisation on on um, conscience grounds or severing ties because of concerns about corruption versus the hit they take by not being associated with its competition. See no evil, here. Either. exactly. So they, they 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 close their eyes to it, and it's actually disgraceful. I mean, they 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 could have ha- um, played a part in exposing this stuff. Years ago, and none of them did. None of them had the guts to do it.
0: Okay. Last question then, Kara. What's next? What can we expect uh, in the courtroom, and what can we expect more broadly for FIFA because of what's happening?
4: Well, I think what's very interesting is the development that Davidson is looking to plead guilty and cooperate uh, because that could have ramifications for Webb. And Webb was at FIFA a very long time, so and he was on the finance committee as well as the World Cup committee so he's
0: got a lot of dirt
4: he could have a lot of dirt and i think that's going to be the most interesting piece of this and see how that unfolds for fifa they're still kind of working through what their new governance structure is going to look like i think um, there's going to be continued pressure to show that they're making some real steps and probably some you know jockeying of who's going to succeed bladder
0: all right caris cannell matt garahan thanks guys thank you thanks finally, a bonus segment on today's episode. One of my favorite people at the Financial Times, Emilia Mahasak.
6: <laughs> that worked. <laughs> Did I get it? Yeah. You get
0: okay. Emilia Mahasuk. she's the US online news editor here, and she's going to host a weekly segment here called The Follow-Up. It's only going to be about five minutes where we just talk about something that happened in the prior episode that she liked. She's going to essentially be playing the role of half ombudsman, half friendly colleague, all truth-telling. Even when we don't like the truth.
6: No, always tell the truth.
0: Okay, fair enough.
6: Even when you don't like it.
0: Even when we don't like it. Okay, Amelia, the last episode, what stood out to you?
6: So I liked everything, of course. That's the friendly colleague speaking. Okay. The end of men segment was the one that burnt me up the most for about a week. That burnt you up? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Uh, what about it burning you up? up. (laughs) So it's predicated on the idea that women are getting better educated, better paid, taking over the workforce. Today, labor statistics come out saying, actually, women are earning $0.82 in the dollar compared to men.
0: Still a profoundly resilient gender wage gap there. Yeah.
6: And another study saying, even though it's closing that gap, that it will be 144 years before we catch up.
0: Before we have equity.
6: Yeah. So. End of man, you know.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so you're you're frustrated by the pace of progress. I think that's definitely understandable. So, Alison Trager, who was the guest in that segment, right? Actually, she herself also said, and her this was her words: she thinks that the end of men is also a kind of a bunk hypothesis. I actually think that to this point, the hypothesis has a certain amount of um, support in the data, right? But the future is obviously impossible to know. What Allison was saying was that, yes, it's true that women are better educated. Um, It's true that there's been a lot of progress recently. That doesn't mean that men themselves are going to be left behind, okay, just because they're not as well-educated or not as well-equipped for the workforce of the future. She thinks that men will actually be able to adjust because they'll find other ways to adapt, that they'll enter what she calls the artisanal economy, where even though they're not well-trained for the jobs that exist or for where the labor market's going – at least they'll be able to sort of create new jobs of their own. They'll be able to essentially imagine new ways of working and that's how that's sort of their way out. Um, so it doesn't sound like she actually disagreed with you too much on the idea that there isn't enough progress being made. Fair?
6: Fair overall on the equality question. But I think the whole premise is there's this romantic notion that men are going to have these artisanal jobs creative, you know, different, away right. from the coalface. But in the meantime, I've you know, unfortunately, women are still at the coalface at lower wages than men. So I sort of think the whole idea of it is this uh as I say, romantic notion about the workforce. Sure.
0: So I guess in one sense I'm a little bit more optimistic, right? When I think, well, okay it's not just that women are better educated now, it's that they have been for a couple of decades, and specifically they've been graduating from college at a rate of three to two. I mean, 60% of college grads now are women. Um, And I guess I always expected there to be some friction in going from one generation to the next, but it doesn't mean that progress is going to halt or it doesn't mean that uh, this is a futile um, a futile thing to be talking about because women will always have this massive gender wage gap and they'll never ascend to leadership positions. I just think it's going to take time, but we'll get there, I think, I hope. Uh, and it does seem like eventually when you have women taking up the majority of even white collar jobs, women continuing to graduate from school at a higher rate, to me that suggests that there's actually quite a bit of hope that we'll get a lot closer to parity than we are now.
6: Say, so I disagree with that just based on the evidence of the last decade of women in leadership positions. So, I, in fact, I think there's a top 500 global women survey out this week. Yeah, fewer Fortune women, 500, for, yeah. So fewer women in leadership positions there. Then, and, a, year
0: ago, then a year ago, but more than, than a decade ago.
6: In terms of board positions, that's not necessarily the case. Board okay. positions haven't particularly... Oh, yeah, I was talking open. about CEOs. Sure. So, But leadership positions generally, whether it's political leadership or financial leadership... Until we see a significant move there, I can't see things changing greatly. As I say, romantic, the notion that of the end of men in the workforce.
0: Okay. Well, I would elevate you to a CEO position anytime. <laughs> okay. Thank
6: you. Card, if you could be my CFO. <laughs>
0: thanks so much. Emilia Mahasek, thanks as always. Thank you. And that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening to Alpha Chat. Again, if you want to get in touch with us and we really encourage this, you can call us at 917 551. 5012 again that's 9175515012 Leave a message and also tell us if you're okay with our playing your message on a future episode of Alpha Chat. You can also email us at Alphachat at ft.com or you can tweet me directly at Cardiff Garcia. This podcast has been produced and edited by Amy Keene. She chose the music. She does her best to make sure that I don't sound like an idiot. This podcast is her world. The rest of us are just talking in it. Thanks, Amy.